Well, my name is Andrew, and uh, I'm the student ministries pastor here. And I'm not uh, preaching today, but I do get the pleasure of introducing who is preaching today. And uh, some of you may remember him from his riveting Ruth sermon a couple years ago, um, but we're bringing back Dr. Don Sanukian. And Dr. Don Sanukian is a professor at Talbot, which is connected to Biola. Uh, he actually, at one time, was my dad's boss, so I only have good things to say. Uh, I'll make sure I stay on the good side. And if you read the uh, back page, I think you could get a little glimpse um, not only into the relationship between Dr. Sanuki and, and Pastor Jim, um, but hopefully if you're like me, uh, you also wondered how can we get our hands on one of those old VHS tapes of Pastor Jim back in school. Oh yeah, there's got to be a way, right? So <clears throat> uh, please just uh, uh, welcome with me Dr. Don Sanuki and be ready for the great word that he's going to share. Thank you. Good to be with you again. Good to be with you again. Early in geometry, we learned the shortest distance between two points is? Your geometry teachers would be proud of you. The shortest distance between two points is a straight line. That means if I'm at point A, and I want to get to point B, the shortest distance between two points, A, B, straight line. All right, now that may be true in geometry, but when you and I think about what God is doing with our lives, we wonder if God doesn't think the shortest distance between two points is a zigzag. And by that I mean we're at point A, and we sense what God's point B is for us. That's what the Spirit of God has kind of put within our heart as that's where God's going to take us. That's the dream, that's the vision, that's the destiny. And in our mind, the shortest distance between where we are and where we believe God is taking us straight line. For example, if you join a company at an entry-level position, and as you think about your future with the company, you see some position in the future in the company that you believe God is going to have you in. That's kind of where your ultimate job with the company is going to be. It's going to be that second floor office with the windows and the gold plate name on the door. Now, your idea of the shortest distance between your entry level and that second floor office, straight line. Something like you get assigned to something that is central to what the company does. You perform well, so well in fact, that they assign you as the lead of another project that is important to what the company does. You bring that project in on time, under budget, and because of your excellent work, you come to the attention of the higher-ups. They flag you as a comer, somebody who's on the fast track. Watch that man. 
Pretty soon they start moving you around to other areas of the company so that you get familiar with all of the operations. And when that second floor office opens up, there you are. Nice straight line. But if God is taking you there, he's on a very strange path. Because instead of getting assigned to something central to what the company does, you got assigned to something peripheral to what the company does. So peripheral that halfway through it was shelled. And now you're in some side cubicle and nobody knows you even work for the company. Maybe you start a construction business. And somehow God has given you a vision or an idea of the eventual magnitude of your business, the volume of work and people and equipment that you will have someday. The shortest distance between starting the company and what you think God has in mind someday for the company, you bid on a job, you make a decent little profit. From that profit, you hire somebody else to work with you, and the two of you bid on additional jobs and make additional profits, and before you know it, you're hiring a lot of people, your payroll is growing, you're hiring company trucks, you're increasing the uh, inventory that you've amassed, and now here you are at the magnitude bidding on government projects, company projects. Straight line. But if God is taking you there, he's on an alternate path. Because you bid on that first project and you lost money. You've disbanded the business. You're working for somebody else. Maybe for you, point A is uh, single. Point B, married. The shortest distance between single and married, some very attractive person visits Peninsula Community Church. After the service, you chat with them outside in the reception social area. You and some of your friends decide you're going to go to Applebee's for lunch. You invite this person to go with you. They go with you and you sit at the same table right across from them or right next to them and you have a marvelous conversation with them. Oh, laugh and everything. You hope they'll show up again next week at Peninsula Community Church. And they do. Next week, as the friends decide that they will go to Chili's, uh, the two of you decide, let's us go to Olive Garden, just the two of us. <laughs> and so you do. At the end of that second lunch, as you walk toward your cars in the parking lot, before you get into your cars, you make a date for Friday night. Lots of Friday night dates have occurred. In fact, there's even been some after-work dates. You've made the obligatory visit to each other's parents to pass inspection. <laughs> and then you show up with Pastor Jim. Pastor Jim. February the 12th, Saturday, 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Keep it open. Dum, dum, da dum, dum. Straight line. But if God is taking you there, it's, 
I mean, they're coming, but they're going. They're coming, but they're going. Mostly they're going. This morning, I want you to see that sometimes God deliberately takes us on an alternate path to get to the destination he has in mind for us. I want us to see that with God, sometimes the shortest distance between two points is a zigzag because that's the only way to get there. I want us to see that, first of all, God intentionally will take us on a zigzag path. Knowingly, purposefully, deliberately, he will take us on an alternate route. I want us to see, second, why he does that. What's his reason? What's the purpose? What's he trying to accomplish? And then finally, how does he keep us encouraged when we don't seem to be making any progress? In the midst of the zigs and the zags, when it, we just wonder if we're ever going to get to where we're going, how does God keep us moving forward expectantly in faith, awaiting his joy? What does he do for us? In order to see that God deliberately leads us, we're going to turn to a time in Israel's history when he deliberately led them on a zigzag path. They're at point A. They know where their point B is, and yet God takes them in the opposite direction, intentionally. Their point A is the territory of Goshen in the land of Egypt. That's where they have been for the last 400 years, slaves under Pharaoh. That's their point A. Pharaoh has just capitulated. Under Moses and Aaron, the ten plagues have decimated Egypt, mourning, wailing through the land because of the death of the Egyptian firstborns. Pharaoh finally says, get out, leave, go! They are in the land of Goshen. Point A. Point B is Canaan, Palestine. They know that's their destination. That's the promised land. The promised land. The land of promise. That's where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are buried. That's their destination. There is no question. That's their point B. Now you can get from the land of Goshen in Egypt by following the Mediterranean sea coast up through the Philistine territory, and you will be in point B within eight to ten days. There's an international trade route, a relatively straight line, a short, near distance, eight to ten days. Point A to point B, straight line. But we're going to read that God takes them south toward the Red Sea deliberately taking them on an alternate path. Let's turn to Exodus 13 to read it. If you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, it'll be page 67. I'll give you time to find it. Page 67, Exodus 13. In the Pew Bible in front of you, page 67. Exodus 13.
we will read that God deliberately took them on a zigzag path, beginning in verse 17. When Pharaoh had let the people go, when he capitulated, when he said, get out, leave Egypt, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter, straight, straight line. For God said if they face war, they might change their minds, they'll go back to Egypt. And so, God led them around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. God deliberately, intentionally, takes them in the alternate path. Sometimes God takes our lives on a zigzag path. Now, why? Why does he do that? What's his reason? What's accomplished? What's the purpose? The answer is that God takes us on a zigzag path because he knows in the straight line path there is some obstacle that would prevent us from ever getting there. There is some difficulty if he were to take us on the near short route, we would never get to the destination. In Israel's case, the obstacle, is told, we're told in verse 17, is if they face war, there is some war, there is some fighting on that international trade route. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us what that is, but there's a couple of very good possibilities. One, that international trade route was also the international invasion route. Egypt's enemies to the north, Syria, Babylon, Nineveh, when they invaded Egypt, they came down that path. And so Egypt had developed fortifications, military installations, war, fighting. The second possibility is that it would be the Philistines through whose territory they would go to get there. The Philistines were the most ferocious warlike people on the planet at that time. One way or another, God in his wisdom knows that there is some obstacle on that direct line path. If he took his people there, they'd never get there. And God says, my people are not ready for that. They're not prepared for that. They'd never met. They'd go back to Egypt. My people have no military skills for that kind of battle. My people have been slaves for 400 years. They have no social cohesion. They have no political structure. Their organizational chart, Moses, two and a half million. I, I, I need to get my people out into an isolated area. And I need to work with them so that they'll eventually be able to safely get in. I need to get them down into the Sinai region. And there I need to first of all convince them they can count on me. They haven't known anything about me for 400 years. They didn't even know my name. Moses had to ask, what, what shall I tell them is your name? They know nothing about me. I've got to let them know they can trust me, that I am committed to them, that I will always show up and take care of them. And the way I will do that is when they get out on that desert floor down there in the Sinai region and their food supplies run out, I will rain down some sort of flake, some sort of pita chip. And it will be on the, the floor every morning when they get up outside their tents. And they will go out the first day when they don't know what it is. And they will pick it up. And they will look at it. And 
And they will say, manna? In Hebrew, manna is manhu, manhu. And manhu means, what is it? What is it? What is it? Never seen it before. And it will have all the nutrients that they need. And the next morning, they will get up and it will be there again. And the next morning, it will be there again. And the next morning, it will be there again. And it will be there every morning. And they will learn that they can trust me, that I'm committed to them. I need to teach them, first of all, that they can rely on me and that I will always be taking care of them. The second thing I need to do out there when I isolate them is I need to work on their self-image. Right now, they look at themselves as a nation of ragtag slaves. I need them to see they are the most favored nation in earth's history. I need to see that I'm going to make them the most prominent people on the planet. I'm going to speak to them, and they are going to say, no people has ever had their God speak. And what he is telling us, they are oracles of truth. They are words of wisdom. They are words of life. We possess knowledge, information that the entire world will seek after. I need to change their self-image from a nation of slaves to a nation that has been chosen as a treasured possession of God. And then the third thing I need to do, I need, I need to work on their military skills, okay? But we're not going to do it fighting these big armies. We're going to have some skirmishes with Bedouins, uh, some Amalekite tribes, and my people will learn how to handle weapons in such a way. And then when everything is done, then we will go back and head toward the destination. My friend, sometimes God knows things are not yet ready for you to go on a straight path. There is some obstacle in the company that you joined at an entry-level position. What would be preventing you from getting to that second-floor office is some disgruntled older working worker who would be jealous of your rapid promotions and would take, who would do everything he could to sabotage your advancement. And God just says, you kind of need to stay under the radar until that jealous older person gets transferred or retires, and then we can move ahead. In the company that you started and had to fold and find yourself not working for somebody else, maybe God knew that if your company progressed that rapidly, it would take too many hours away from your small children. It would prevent being at home. The rapid influx of money might lead to some unwise financial decisions and commitments. And instead, God is keeping you where you can cement a connection to your children for a lifetime and where you can learn to make wise financial uses of the money. Being single, it may be that God knows that the person he's going to bring to you is they're not yet ready. They're working on some things. They've got some issues that they're needing to deal with. And God's giving them time to deal with those issues so that when you come together, the marriage is strong and enduring rather than fragile and tormented. Sometimes God in his wisdom knows 
that the only safe, sure way to get to the destination is a zigzag path. He will deliberately lead us on alternate routes to his destination to make sure that we get there. But that's hard on us. We watch the zigs and the zags and we don't seem to be getting anywhere and we get discouraged, you know. In fact, if we kind of go too far off track, we get more than discouraged. We actually begin to doubt. Doubt. Maybe there was no point B. Maybe I just talked myself into it. Maybe I psyched myself into thinking that's what God, maybe that's my pipe dream, not God's destiny. When that happens, how does God keep us encouraged? How does he keep us moving ahead expectantly, joyfully, anticipating his goodness? The Bible goes on to tell us that God will do two things for us that will keep us moving steadfastly ahead. God will do two things for us. The first thing he will do, the scripture says, is that in the midst of the zigs and the zags, God will give you continual reminders of his good intentions. As the path alternates and moves off the straight line path, God will come to you in one way or another and he will let you know that he is still moving you toward the point B he has identified. In Israel, the continual reminder when they left Egypt that they were going to end up at point B in Canaan, the continual reminder was a coffin, a sarcophagus with the bones of Joseph in it. That's what we, continue, we read next in verse 19. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him when they left Egypt. He took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph, hundreds of years earlier, had made the sons of Israel swear an oath to him. Joseph had said to them when they gathered around his deathbed, he had said to them, God will surely come to your aid. You're going to leave this place of Egypt, and when you do, you must carry my bones with you from this place. Don't leave me here in Egypt. 400 years earlier, Joseph was the first of the Jewish nation, the Israelites, to enter into Egypt, sold there by his brothers. Over time, his skills allowed him to become the number two man in the kingdom. Eventually, his father, brothers, and 70 members of their family, they joined him in Egypt under his protection. For the rest of his lifetime in Egypt, those 70 grew into about two or 300. And 400 years earlier than this, at the end of the book of Genesis, as Joseph is dying, these two to three hundred are around him. And he says to them, Egypt is not our permanent home. God is going to come. God's going to take our people out of Egypt. When he does, don't leave my bones here. I want you to take with me to Canaan to be buried in the land where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are buried. I want to be there too. Swear to me, you will take my bones with me. And now 400 years later, as they're getting ready to Egypt, several husky men go and they pick up 
that coffin. And every day as they are walking out of Egypt, these men are carrying this coffin. And I can hear some kid, some kid say to his mother, why are those men carrying that big box? Honey, that's not a box, that's a coffin. What's a coffin? It has the bones of a dead man in it. Oh, gross. <laughs> but why are they carrying it? Well, honey, we're, we're taking it to Egypt. I mean, to Canaan. We're taking it to Canaan. But we're not headed to Canaan. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. That coffin is going to Canaan. And every day, as that coffin leads the continuing travels, what, no matter what, where, where it's going, that coffin says, we're headed to Canaan. And my friend, in some way, by something somebody says, by something you hear, by something that comes to you in the night, in some way, God will find some way that if the dream is of God, if point B is God's destiny for you, God will find some way to let you know we're still moving that direction. He'll give you continual reminders of his good intention. At the company that you've joined and you find yourself in some side cubicle, a client that you had worked with a year or two earlier calls the company and the phone call gets transferred to your cubicle. And when you pick up the phone and he recognizes their voices, are you still in that cubicle? I would have thought by all, by your, all of your ability, by now you'd be. And out of his mouth will come the very words of that corner office. You've never told anybody that. He has no way of knowing that that's what you expected God to take you to. And God will say, do you hear I've still got you on track? In the construction business that you started and folded and find yourself working for somebody else, you'll come home one night and your answering machine, you'll hit the button on the thing and the button, the voice in the machine will say, I tried to find your business on the internet, but I couldn't. And then somebody told me that you'd gone out of business. Hey, man, I would have thought with the quality work you do by now, you'd be... And you will hear the Spirit of God saying the things that he has said before. It could be that as you're single, some dear lady at Peninsula Community Church will come up to you and say, you know who I think would make a good couple? <laughs> you and God. I think so too. Are you trying to tell me something? That's God's first promise to you. If the dream is of him, if point B is of God, he will give you continual reminders of his good intentions. That's the first thing he'll do. 
The second thing he'll do is, in the midst of the zigs and the zags, you will have a palpable sense of his presence. You will have a tangible, vibrating sense that God is part of your life. He is leading. He is protecting. He is telling you what the next steps are. You will have an experience of his presence like never before. For Israel, this palpable, tangible sense of God's presence, it was a column of a white, opaque, swirling mass. They called it a, a, a pillar of cloud. It was a column of cloud, a, a cloud pillar. At night, it became luminescent. It was as though there was a fire inside of it. It glowed, and it shed light all over. This was the tangible, palpable presence of their God. It came into their existence as soon as they stepped out of Egypt, and it was with them on the zigs and the zags until they crossed the Jordan River into Palestine, and it was gone again forever. In the midst of the zigs and the zags, God will give you a palpable, tangible sense of his presence. We read about this presence in verse 20. After leaving Succoth, they camped at Etham. Etham is on the edge of the desert. That's the last border outpost to Egypt. When you leave Etham, you are entering into desert. You're going where people don't go. There are no roads. There are no maps. There is no GPS. You are entering into a trackless waste. And we read that this tangible sense of God's presence came to them. By day, the Lord would go ahead of them in a pillar of cloud. He would guide them as to the route that they should take next. By night, this became a pillar of fire. It could give them light, and he could lead them to travel by day or by night. This pillar of cloud by day, this pillar of fire by night, it never left its place in front of the people. It was with them until they reached point B. We read that this pillar of fire was first of all leading them, guiding them, showing them what route to take the tangible presence of God. You will sense that he is leading you. You're following him. He's showing you the next movements. This tangible presence of God was also protecting them because when they left Egypt and Pharaoh's chariots and horses chased after them, when they saw the chariots behind them and they saw an impassable sea ahead of them, this cloud that was in front of them and leading them, this cloud passed over them and inserted itself between the chariots. The sea opened up. They went through it on dry land. When they were safely over on the other side, the cloud lifted, the chariots came after them, but the waters closed over them. God's presence was protecting them. The book of Psalms tells us that also when they got out into the heat of the desert, 
this cloud became a shade canopy over them to shelter them from the heat of the day. God was leading them. God was guiding them. God was protecting them, sheltering them. We also learned that God was speaking to them through this cloud. When they got to Mount Sinai, this cloud hovered over the mountain and out of the cloud, the voice of their God spoke words of wisdom, words of life. You will have a tangible, palpable sense that God is leading you. God is watching over you, protecting you. God is telling you what he wants you to know until you get to the point B that he has for you. My friend, sometimes God just takes our life in what seems to us like an alternate path. Because in his wisdom, he knows that's the safe way to get there. Sometimes with God, the shortest distance between two points is a zigzag. Follow him without fear. You are safe in his hands. Our Lord, we thank you for the wonderful sovereign care that you have over our lives. You know all the future things about it that we are unable to see. And in this infinite wisdom that you have, you somehow work all the paths together to accomplish your good purposes. Give us absolute confidence in your love, absolute confidence that you know what you are doing with our lives and that as long as we walk with you in integrity and in obedience, we know that you will lead us well. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.